while the kids are making their way out, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6? Acts chapter 6. So as we've been making our way through the book of Acts, two themes have have arisen so far. Uh, There's been a few, but in terms of uh, dangers that threaten the health of the church, Luke has drawn our attention to two. Uh, One we discussed last week at length, and that's the threat of persecution. And so Luke made us aware that the the church faced lots of opposition from outside, but then in in chapter 5, if you remember, he reminded us that there's also the threat from within, uh, the threat of hypocrisy and scandal, And the story of Ananias and Sapphira alerted us to that. And I hope that you're picking up by now, and if you haven't, pick it up right now. Luke is not just teaching us so that we will have more information about the past. He's reminding us of these stories because he wants to prepare us for the future. He's preparing us for these patterns, for these these things that we need to be alert to, we need to be prepared for. And this morning, he alerts us to something else. I wouldn't call it a danger, but I would say it's a, it's a complication, maybe even a threat, uh, something we need to think very carefully about. Today, Luke draws our attention to the complexities associated with growth. Now, growth is very exciting. We all, you know, growth, you think about growth and you think, well, that sounds great. And if you think about the church in Acts, boy, they started with 120 in chapter 1. And by the time we get to our passage today, it's well over 3,000. And any of us would say, praise God, let that happen here today. Amen. That would be fantastic. It would be amazing. And Luke tells us today, and it would be very, very complicated. It's complicated. So complicated, in fact, that if if you're not thinking and reacting and discerning, uh, the church could rupture. So today we come to a a story in which this growth has presented the church with a real challenge, and we see that response to that challenge. So we're going to learn from this, and then we're going to think very applicably about how we can apply these lessons to our context today. To that end, would you look with me to Acts chapter 6. I'm going to begin in verse 1 and read to the end of verse 7. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, and they said, it is not right that we should give up teaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they had said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you just bow your heads with me for a moment? Heavenly Father, we invite you to speak to us today. And I thank you that you have not left us on our own, um, Lord, that we're not subject to my thoughts or my whims or anyone here's ability to listen or discern, but we have the help of your Spirit. So I pray that by your Spirit you would shine light on this passage and shine light on our hearts. Help us to see what it is that we should see, Lord, and and hear what we should hear. I pray that you'd work. I pray that we'd come to the text today with confidence because you promise us the word goes forth and never returns void and the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. 
So God, we come and we want to hear from you, and we need to hear from you. And so to that end, we ask for your help, and we ask with great expectation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And so our text this morning is, is not particularly complicated. Uh, when, you, when you get right into it, it's, it's a church that's grown from 120 to 3,000, and so that's created some issues. Remember, you've got widows who have come to Jerusalem, and they've come to worship, and, and families have gathered to Jerusalem to worship, and then they put their trust in Jesus, and they've come into this movement, and they can't simply just go back home because there is no church back home. This, the Jesus movement right now is in Jerusalem. And so a lot of families, a lot of these widows, are, they're displaced. They're saying, okay, well, I guess I live in Jerusalem now because I, I need to continue to grow in my faith. And that puts some real strains on the system. The, the way that they were providing for the widows in the past, that whole thing had been overrun. They couldn't keep up with the need. Vulnerable people are falling through the cracks. People are raising complaints, and it's, it needs to be solved. Now, you've got the, the Hebrews and the Hellenists, and so maybe there's some people here today who aren't sure who they are. We'll explain who they are, and we'll, we'll talk a bit about the complexities of that relationship. But apart from that, the passage is, is relatively straightforward. The church experienced massive growth, and that growth required that the church adjust their approach. Now, not all churches grow from 120 to 3,000. Some do, but not all do. But whether growth is exponential or slow, all growth requires a measure of change. And change is a frightening thing, and that spans across the centuries and the cultures. And I mentioned before, Luke didn't simply share this story with us to inform us about details of the past. He shared this story to prepare us for the future. So to that end, let's make our way through this passage, and we're going to learn how a healthy church navigates growth. We're going to pull out six lessons today, and we're going to be very practical as we work our way through. So here's the first lesson. We learn that growing churches should expect growing pains. So in the same way that Luke is sharing these stories to prepare us that we shouldn't be surprised by the presence of persecution, and we shouldn't be surprised by the presence of of scandal or hypocrisy, here he's telling us that we shouldn't be surprised if and when the Lord brings growth to feel a measure of, of growing pains. That shouldn't surprise us. He wants us to see that the growth and these complaints are related. Look at verse 1. He's drawing a line. He says, now in these days, which days, Luke? The days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose. So he's, he's drawing a line here. The problem in Jerusalem with the widow support program was subsequent to, to and directly resulting from this wonderful, explosive growth that we've been reading about, which reminds us that growth is amazing, but it's also complicated. How will the church minister faithfully to this massive number of widows who place their trust in Jesus? That's, that's this text. That's what it's setting us up for. It's a good challenge, but it's a challenge nonetheless. And so we're going to spend our time this morning considering their solution and learning lessons from their solution. But first, I want to learn some lessons from this reality that growing churches should expect growing pains. I think it'd be appropriate for us to take a moment and ask, what growing pains might we experience in the days ahead of us if we were to continue to grow? Well, for starters, our congregation is inching ever closer to this thing called the 200 threshold, which for whatever reason, you know, there's all kinds of articles written about what happens in churches when the 
the average attendance passes this 200 mark. Apparently, it really affects the culture of the church because people come to small churches for particular reasons. People come to small churches because they, they like the fact that they know everyone's name and everyone knows their name. Uh, they, they can have the pastor over for dinner kind of whenever they want to. Um, they, they like this, this feel of, of tight-knit. And I love that. I would say that we as a church, we love that small church feel. That's what we call it, don't we? And this isn't just me speculating because we do the congregational surveys, and so we have data on this, hard data. So back when we were, we were still a part of Cornerstone, and we had the Redeemer campus and the Cornerstone campus, we often asked on the survey, you know, what's, why is it that you attend at this Redeemer campus with these awful chairs uh, and not at the Cornerstone campus? What is it that has you here? And the number one answer every time we asked that question was, I love the small church feel. So this is, this is a part of our DNA, and it has been a part of our DNA from the beginning. And that's great. I also love the small church feel. But what happens if God grows the church? Suddenly there are faces, and you can't put names to them. Like, who is that? I, I don't know who that person is. And suddenly the pastor can't realistically go to everybody's house for dinner. And that process, that growing pain, can be really awkward. It can be painful, even. People can slip through the cracks, and needs can be missed. And, and long-time attendees can, can have a, a weird resentment for new people coming in, and, and maybe some of that's already happening. Maybe you're feeling some of that in your heart. Well, our passage this morning says, hey, don't be surprised by the pains that come along with growth. This is worth exploring, so give me permission to camp here for a moment. I hope that we can say, I hope if you've been here from the beginning or if you're new, I hope that we can say that we've never been a church that's set out for growth for the sake of growth. You know, you can do that. Uh, you can say, hey, you know what, our goal is just to be as big as possible. That's, uh, that's never been us. We've never set attendance goals. We've never changed our meeting to try and make it more um, attractional for people to come in. I don't think, I think that's a fair assessment. I think our goal has been to be faithful. We just want to be faithful with whatever God has for us. If he shrinks us, if he grows us, what have you, we want to be faithful. And so we sought to be faithful when there were 40 of us here on day one, and we were set up here in this little corner. Some of you can remember that day. And we sought to be faithful when it grew to 80, and then when it grew to 150. And if God continues to grow us, how might we minister faithfully if, if we find ourselves growing beyond 200, this scary number? What do we do? Do we eventually lock the door? Because we could do that. We could lock the door and say, listen, nobody else can come in here because we're going to lose our small church feel. Right? No, no, Alex says. Do we allow our love for this small church feel to keep us from adapting to whatever it is that God is doing in our midst? What will faithfulness look like in the days ahead? I don't know. I don't know. I suspect that if God does that, and P.S., he might not. I, I'm saying all, he might shrink us. So next week, half of you might say, I hated that sermon, and, and it's, we could be right back down to 40 very quickly. These things happen. I'm saying, if God were to grow this congregation, we would probably, unfortunately, make some mistakes along the way. Yeah, and we learned that here in, in Acts 6. But like the example that we see here in Acts, let's remember that growth, if and when it comes, it comes from God. He gives it when he pleases, and he takes it away when he pleases. And if he were to choose to give it here, let's resolve not to be surprised or unsettled if, if some awkward pains come with it along the way.
Fair? So let's learn that lesson. And now let's, let's move into the second lesson we see here, which is that good congregations communicate and good leaders listen. So Gary often repeats this German saying, is Gary in here today? He's not in here. He, I can't smell it. Only he says it in German with only the passion that, that Gary can uh, muster up. But have you heard him say this? I can't smell it. The point of this motto is that if there's something going on in your life, you shouldn't just assume that the people around you are going to be able to discern what's wrong and fix what's wrong. If, if you don't say something about that need that you're feeling, it might never be, be met. You know why? Because I can't smell it. So unless you say something, it might just continue to fester. I think that there's wisdom in that saying. And if these offended brothers and sisters in Acts 6, in this Jerusalem church, if they had sat silently and allowed this frustration to fester as the Hellenist widows were neglected, boy, it, it could have, and I would say, it would have ripped this church in half. But they spoke up. And because they spoke up, the apostles were afforded an opportunity to find a solution before real lasting damage was done to this young fledgling church. And to that end, on a practical note, I, I just want to thank those of you, I mean, not to guilt any who didn't, but thank you if you filled out the congregational survey. I know it probably seems like such a small thing, but it is so incredibly helpful for us to be able to see the congregation, to see the ministry happening here through a different lens. And there is not a, a year that's gone by when we haven't looked at the congregational survey results, and there's always something that somebody identifies, either something that we're doing that's just not right, or something that we should be doing or could be doing, but inevitably somebody points to something and the whole leadership team looks and goes, how did, how did we miss this? Like, duh, how did we miss this? It's so beneficial, so thank you. And I would say, please continue to communicate. And it doesn't need to stop at November when the congregational survey is over. We want to hear from you, so please do that. But we also learn in this passage that it takes two to communicate. Meaning a congregation can raise as many concerns as they like, but it won't accomplish anything unless the leaders listen. And to that end, I so appreciate the example that the apostles set in this passage. It's worth reflecting on. When they heard this complaint from the Hellenists, and who knows, did the, did the Hellenists raise this respectfully? Did they do this obnoxiously? It doesn't say anything about it. But when they heard the complaint, they didn't issue a church-wide statement about this problem was actually because of the Hellenists, right? They didn't do that. They didn't post some, some vague tweet about how I'm so underappreciated, nobody understands the work that I do. No, they didn't do any of that. There's no blame shifting in their response. There's no woe is me in their response. All the things that, that I know this heart is so inclined towards, there's none of that. When the complaint arose, they listened. They considered it. They agreed with the assessment, so they proposed a solution. They prayed for the new team, and then they carried on. As one commentator notes, leaders with the right priorities focus not on their prestige in the congregation, but on God's word. They will not be defensive, defending the status quo, but offensive, looking for creative solutions. So to that end, I want to grow in this area because I see tendencies in me, defensive tendencies, more the woe is me thing. I, I can see some of that in myself. So pray for me and pray for us, your elders, your leaders. Pray that we would grow in this. And in turn, we will pray for you. Uh, we'll pray that you are courageous and willing to raise the concerns that you see and to bring them to our attention. 
Because, as we learn here, good congregations communicate and good leaders listen. Third, we learn in this passage that biblical priorities produce lasting solutions. So here we've got a complaint. The complaint has arisen. It's been expressed. They're processing it. And now we get into the problem-solving time. And before they come forward with the solution, and P.S., as they hear this complaint, they realize we've got to act fast. You know, this is an urgent complaint. Nevertheless, before they brainstorm a solution, they establish their priorities. We see this in verse 2. They say, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, and they said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, if you've never read through the Bible before, that probably, you could read that the wrong way. It could sound a bit abrasive, right? Like, oh, the apostles, this is, this, this, is this work beneath you? However, if you've been reading in chapter 4 and 5, then you know that up until this point, the apostles have been the ones who have been ministering to the tables. Remember, when the, we've, we're reading about those stories of generosity, where did they bring these offerings that, that needed to be distributed to the widows? They laid it at the apostles' feet. And so up until this point in the story, the apostles have been responsible for the preaching and teaching and the prayer, and they had been responsible for the administration of the mercy ministries of the church. So they've been doing all of these things, but here in Acts 6, as these ruptures, these cracks are beginning to reveal themselves, they realize this is too much. It's just too much. As the church grew, the administration of benevolence required more focus. But the apostles rightly recognized that they didn't have more focus to give. So if they were going to give their focus to this, if they were going to tackle this new problem, they were going to need to let go of some of the preaching and teaching and prayer that they had been doing. And with wisdom, they they recognized and drew a line and said, we're not going to let go of that. So yes, this is a need, but, but no, it's not right for us to let go of this to do that. So if the church is like a car, think of it this way, If the church is like a car, then this word ministry that is preaching and teaching and prayer and our corporate gatherings, that's in the driver's seat, right? That's got the steering wheel. And you say, well, says who? Well, says Jesus. In the Great Commission, we're told that our our commandment, our, our goal in life is to go and to make disciples. And how do we do that? We make disciples by preaching and teaching, by opening our mouths and teaching all that that Jesus has called us to. Uh, In Romans uh, 9, he talks about, well, how are they to believe unless they've heard, and how are they to hear unless someone preaches to them? So we, we can't let go of that. That needs to be in the driver's seat, and nothing should ever displace it from the driver's seat. Amen? Would you agree? So that, now, but here's, I want you to hear this piece, because I suspect that for our congregation, that part's going to come real naturally. I suspect that all of us instinctively are going to say, we can't let go of that. That's got to be in the driver's seat. But now hear this. The apostles did prioritize the word, but that doesn't mean that they let go of mercy ministry. As, as mercy ministry reached out to kind of grab the steering wheel, the apostles didn't grab mercy ministry and throw it out the window. And they could have. They, in that moment, they could have just said, hey, you know what? Sit down. Because we've got some sermons to prepare, and we can't be bothered by this. But they didn't do that. No faithful church will ever do that. Because we minister to the whole person. We are called to a ministry that resembles the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus ministered in word and deed. I love this quote from Amy Carmichael. She was a missionary who was criticized for 
for sometimes they would say, you know, she was doing too much of the mercy ministry. And, and maybe she got her priorities out of order. I don't know enough about her life to assess whether or not she did. But I can say that this quote that she has is very helpful. She wrote back and she said, one cannot save and then pitchfork souls into heaven. Souls are more or less securely fastened to bodies. And as you cannot get the souls out and deal with them separately, you have to take them both together. And I've, I've used that quote before. I just think it's so helpful. She reminds us that, listen, like you have to minister to the whole person. As you're ministering here in the city of Aurelia, you have to minister to the whole person. So we, we put word ministry first, but then we've got to minister to the felt needs of people as well. And so the apostles refused to displace this ministry of the word, but they proposed a solution. They commissioned the church to set apart seven men of good repute who were full of the spirit and of wisdom. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, the great preacher, I like his brief summary. He said, they were to be men of sanctified common sense. I think that's helpful. Now, these men weren't officially deacons in that that office didn't exist yet, and Luke doesn't refer to them with that title. Nevertheless, I believe he means for us to see, and Bible scholars would agree that these are, they're like the proto-deacons. So they're like a template that kind of sets a trajectory for what we're going to see in the future. And as we work through the book of Acts, and we see in, in the Apostle Paul's epistles, a new office develops in the church of those who care for the mercy ministry of the church, those who give attention to these felt physical needs. We can trace that all the way back to Acts 6. But the lesson in this passage is that both word and mercy ministry are necessary in the church. So I don't know which way you need to hear that, which one you're inclined to let go of, but we need both in the church. And yet, one is primary. If we don't have that straight in our minds, then we'll find that the most urgent issue of the day will always be reaching over and grabbing the steering wheel and changing our direction. But when we have biblical priorities, we'll come up with lasting solutions with the problems that arise. So that's the third lesson. Fourth, we learn in this story that diversity can complicate growth, but it's worth it. Diversity can complicate growth, but it's worth it. And I think that's a clumsy heading, but I couldn't think of another way to faithfully capture the lesson that we learn here, and I think it's an important lesson. So here we're going to get into the Hebrews and the Hellenists. Who are these people, Hebrews and Hellenists? So the Hebrews was an expression to refer to those Jews who, whose primary language was Hebrew, uh, those Jews who had grown up in a, in a Jewish culture. You know, many of them had grown up in Jerusalem, but they were immersed in this Jewish culture. Whereas the Hellenists, they were also Jews, so both groups are Jews, but the Hellenists had grown up in a Greek culture. They had grown up in a, in the, in a Gentile world, which is the non-Jewish world. So jump back in your mind to when the Remember, we've been talking about the Assyrian invasion around 700 B.C. And remember, the northern tribes of Israel were obliterated and people were scattered, and some scattered south to Judah, but many of them had to scatter out to the nations. And those people are called the diaspora, or the diaspora. And, and all those Jewish people wound up having to put down roots in lands that were not their own. They were still Jews, but they were growing up in all parts of the world. Now they come back to Jerusalem to worship, and you've got these, these two groups. One group, they're Jewish, but they speak Hebrew, they're all in that world. Another group is Jewish, and yet the way they talk, I mean, some of those folks might not have even spoken Hebrew. 
And they, they look like this, this Greek culture. It's very different. And these are significant differences that existed within the church. In fact, history suggests that there was real tension between these two Jewish subcultures. Yet then they come to hear the, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They put their trust in Jesus. And these groups have come together, united in the gospel. And that's exactly how it ought to be, right? It's a beautiful picture of unity in the midst of diversity. But here in Acts 6, we see that this unity is threatened. So the Hellenists recognized that their widows are not getting the same level of support as the Hebrew widows. And now, I should say, based upon the response of the apostles and how urgently they brought a need, I don't think that we could say that that was rooted in any kind of bias. It it was just clumsiness. It just happened. But because of that undercurrent of, of that cultural tension... This is a big deal, because suddenly as the Hellenist is watching that, hey, I notice that your grandma is being looked after and my grandma is being neglected, all of that anger and resentment and turmoil is bubbling up from inside of them. Again, this is a very big deal. Oh, I thought the gospel was supposed to bring us together, and yet I see it's just like it's always been. You think you're the real Jews, and we're the the Jew imposters. We're less than in this church. The apostles quickly realized this isn't your run-of-the-mill complaint. This isn't somebody complaining about the music being too loud or the room being too hot. No, there are deep-rooted cultural undercurrents behind this complaint. If we don't deal with this, our church might rip into two. The church was growing in diversity, these groups coming together. And that diversity was beautiful. But as we see here, it did add an extra layer of complexity. So what do they do? Did they break these groups? Did they say, okay, tell you what, why don't we have the the Hebrew Christians worship here, we'll get the Hellenist Christians to worship here, we'll have these two separate gatherings. You know, that's what we're so often inclined to do, right? Nope, they didn't do that, though. They landed on a solution that is far more beautiful and profound than most of us even realize. I wonder if if some of us haven't skimmed past this next detail. I want to show you. Look again at verse 5. Read through those names in your mind. We've already observed that the seven were men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. Those were the qualifications that the apostles set out for this group. But I want to draw your attention to one more significant detail about this group of seven. All seven of these men who were set apart had Greek names, meaning all seven of of these men were Hellenists. Why is that beautiful? Why is that profound? Because, remember, in the complaint... The Hellenists were essentially saying, we feel like you don't care about our widows as much as you care about your widows. We feel like you think we're some kind of lower class here. That's a big deal. And so how did the church respond? They surrendered complete control of the entire widow support program, and they appointed seven Hellenists to run it. One author notes, the Hebrews in the church apparently prized unity so much that they bent over backwards to care for their Hellenist sisters. Even to the point of entrusting their own widows, their own grandmas, to these brothers from an unfamiliar Greek culture. They didn't set up a panel with four and three or three and four. No, they said, tell you what, we did miss it. So, so you run this. Seven Hellenists. We're going to set you apart. You're going to look after all of the widows. We trust you. Why? Because it wasn't the Hebrews' church. It was Jesus' church. 
And this congregation wanted to ensure that the Hellenists understood that they belonged here too. And they were willing to surrender positions of power to communicate that the church did not belong to any one particular culture. And if Twitter existed at the time, then you can bet the Pharisees would have been tweeting, oh, look, this young church has gone woke. But they were, it's not that. This isn't, this isn't some throwaway. This isn't some virtue signaling. This is signaling to their brothers and sisters that you belong here. And we're going to be urgent, and we're going to go over and above to bridge this history of hurt that exists within us. We should learn that lesson. So listen, as our city grows, and as it grows in diversity, and praise God, it, I mean, we went to the park the other day, not the other day, we went to the park quite a while ago when it was warm. And uh, it's just incredible. You're hearing languages all around you that you don't recognize. And our church, our city is growing and is growing in diversity. And as our city grows in diversity, I would hope that our, our church would grow in diversity as well. I would hope that we would see the nations represented in our gathering. And we would be naive to think that there won't be an added layer of complexity in that diversity. But we're reminded here that the church of Jesus Christ is not reserved for any one culture. And that if and when he brings the nations into this gathering, we must do the work to ensure that we maintain our unity, even in the midst of our diversity. It's beautiful. It adds a layer of complexity. But it's worth it. That's the fourth lesson we learn. And it leads naturally into the fifth lesson we learn, which is that growing churches need to be faithful and flexible. This is a super important lesson that I think we often miss when we work through this passage. So I've said this a few times, and I'll say it a few more times. The book of Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive, uh, meaning it's, it's describing what's happened in these moments. But it's not drawing a one-to-one -one line prescribing what we need to do in this moment. For example, we're not supposed to come out of Acts 6 and say, okay, we need to find seven Hellenist men to care for the widows in our city. That's what Luke's saying. No, I don't think that's what Luke is saying. That's not the lesson. That'd be an example of missing the lesson. But one of the lessons that we can take from this story is that the church both needs to be and is permitted to be flexible. So this problem arises in the Jerusalem church and it exceeds their existing systems. They don't have a system in place that can meet this need. They had to leave behind an old approach and build something new to meet this pressing need. And Luke highlights this. And he says, you should learn from this example. One Bible scholar observes, this is Richard Longnecker, he says, Luke's narrative here suggests that to be fully biblical is to be constantly engaged in adapting traditional methods and structures to meet existing situations, both for the sake of the welfare of the whole church and for the outreach of the gospel. That is a helpful, and I would say a controversial statement. To be fully biblical is to be constantly engaged in adapting. Okay, don't hear me wrong, and don't hear him wrong, and don't hear Luke wrong. Not consistently adapting the theology. Theology doesn't change. The truth doesn't change. The gospel doesn't change. If the theology, the truth, the gospel is changing, you've, you've lost it. And in the book of Acts, we're going to see that that happens a few times, and the apostles deal with that firmly. That can't change. However, 
the practice and the structures that are built to solve the problems, those change, those adapt. And, and as he says, to be fully biblical is to embrace the fact that those change and adapt. If the apostles had dug in their heels in this situation and had said, no, forget it. We run this program. We do the teaching, we do the preaching, and we minister to the widows. So get in line, we'll figure it out. Yeah, there's going to be some bumps because we got a lot on our plate, but that's the way we do it. If they had done that, I think this young church probably eventually splits in two. I think this ministry that we're reading about, that we're celebrating and delighting in, grinds to a halt. Can I tell you something? Sadly, over the last 2,000 years, so many ministries have ground to a halt. They encountered new problems, and they refused to adapt. They dug in their heels. They had opportunities for gospel ministry, but maybe they had a pastor who needed to micromanage every detail, and he just couldn't take his hands off of every little thing, and so the ministry could never grow beyond his little hands. That happens. I got these little hands too, and I feel that temptation. They adopted a posture of, of unwavering commitment to their traditions and their systems and their ways of doing things because in their hearts and in their minds, they falsely equated those traditions and those systems and those ways of doing things with the Bible itself. And that, that's dangerous, right? When we take our preferences and we, we baptize them and we say that this has the same authority as God's word, it doesn't. It doesn't. And there is more freedom in the Bible than many seem to recognize. John Piper is not a, you know, what you might call a theological liberal, or uh, he's not someone who, who is careless or thoughtless with the Word of God, but he's got this quote that might be going to rub you the wrong way. He says, The New Testament shows a stunning indifference to the outward forms and places of worship. He, he talks about how in the Old Testament, Worship, it was, it was so carefully curated. It was so closely tied to this person in this place, at this time, in this system, in this building, with this offering. But he says it's interesting. As you walk into the New Testament, you see that that, that, that um, intricacy, that minutia with the detail, it's, it's lifted. It changes. In the New Testament, what is shocking is how, how different it is that there's an openness, that there's a freedom to apply. Well, what's changed? Well, the church has changed. This, he says it's a missional change because this gospel now is not, it's not going to be preached just in this, in this one place for this one culture and this one people. It's going to be breaking across cultural boundaries. It's going to be going across the ocean to this place and that place. It's wisdom. So listen, we're going to be clear where the Bible is clear. But where the Bible leaves room for freedom, we need to recognize and celebrate God's wisdom. To put it in really simple terms, we are, all of us, myself included, going to be tempted to, to say, church should look like this. It should look like this. Right? I feel that all the time. I go to a church and it doesn't look like what I, what's this thing in my mind and I can feel the, it bubbling up. It should look like this. I have this sad story of when I was um, going to minister in the Dominican. As I was much younger and the reality is you know, minister is a generous term. I, as I stumbled around in the Dominican and was ministered to, um, I remember attending this, we were in this Haitian refugee camp, and I attended these worship gatherings every week, and just the music. I, at the time, I was really, I really thought a lot about my own musical abilities. I thought I was a big deal. And I remember just sitting and listening, 
And I remember that, Ola Bole, Ola Bole, Ola Bole, every week, Ola Bole, Ola Mi Senor. And I remember just sitting and thinking, you know, sometimes they're not playing the same notes, and there's only two instruments happening, and I thought, I could fix this. And I did. I thought, I could, I could teach him. I could teach him. He's out of tune. I could tune, his, I could tune his instrument, and I could help him to understand the way these keys work, and I could show him some better songs. I could, I could fix this. And I believed that my whole time there. And praise God, I couldn't speak good Spanish. I probably would have done some harm, you know? Senor, por favor, that's as far as I could get. Um, but I, I felt it in me. The church should look like this. And, and I, was, I was wrong. I was baptizing my preferences and thinking that these hold the same weight as God's word, and they don't. And we're all going to feel that. We're going to feel that as we look at other churches. We're going to feel that in our own context here. One church has 60 kids. Feel familiar? That <laughs> presents some challenges. And you need, if you're not factoring that into the ministry you do as a congregation, then you're not paying attention, right? The, if you think that the ministry that you did when you had zero kids is all just going to fit when you have 60 kids, you're not thinking carefully about your context. Another church has 50 seniors. Another church is downtown, and they're ministering to the Sikh community. Another church is renting a facility, and you can only meet there on Saturday evenings. Another church is in the persecuted part of the world, and you can only gather in secret, and there's no regularity to those gatherings. And Jesus is the Lord of every one of those churches. And every one of those churches is called to be faithful. And if any one of those churches had to deal with this idea in our mind, this little idol that we hold up of, this is the way the church should look, do this, or you're unfaithful, then they would be racked with guilt. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Faithful and flexible. All that is to say, we have systems in place, structures in place, ways of doing things here at Redeemer that we do because we think they're valuable, we think they're faithful, they think, we think that they meet the existing problems. Good. But they're not the Bible. So I'm saying that to me, to the leadership team, to you. They're not the Bible. Therefore, in the same way that the early church was willing to drop their old approach when it wasn't working and adapt Let's resolve to be willing and able to adapt if and when the need arises for the sake of gospel witness in this city and in the world. Growing churches need to be faithful and flexible. We learned that lesson in this passage. And we learned that, and it's important because as we conclude, this last lesson we learn is that when the system is fixed, the word of God increases and the congregation flourishes. So they identify the problem and they restructure the system and they lay hands on these men and they send them and they assign them to look after this. And then we read in verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. Think about that. It was at 3,000 plus. The 3,000 plus multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This love that they had for, for one another, the way they cared for one another in this ministry was so captivating that even the, the priests in Jerusalem... Now, when we think of the priests, we think of the chief priests, right? This small family. But recognize that there were anywhere between two to 6,000 priests that lived in Jerusalem. They were like a, kind of the lower class of priests. They would minister in the temple maybe two weekends of, of the year, two weeks of the year. Uh, and a lot of them were living in poverty. A lot of them had to work in the trades. They were, they were kind of the less than priests. And they're seeing this church in the way that they're loving God's people. And, and they're coming to Christ. It kind of gives you an idea why the persecution is going to get so hot and heavy in the next verse. Right? Even the priests are coming to worship Jesus. When the system's fixed, 
the word of God increases and the congregation flourishes. Now, if I could just disarm you for a moment, I'm not priming the pump for a massive change that's coming down the pipeline. I didn't pick this text strategically to soften you up for some looming announcement that's going to rock your world. There is no looming announcement as far as I know. There's nothing coming down the pipeline as far as I know. This is just what's next in the text. And to be honest with you, as I was looking at this text when, we kind of, when I was planning out the series, I figured, you know, we're just going to spend a lot of time talking about deacons. That was kind of the plan. And of course, we learn about that, and we're, we've got deacons in place here, and we're going to be leaning into that in the months and years ahead. But I found as I studied through the text and prayed about the text and meditated on the text, it did a really helpful work in my heart, and, and maybe God's going to do a work in your heart as well. I confess that I, like most people, struggle with change. You can ask my wife. I am predictable and boring. I'm a creature of habit. I am not overly ambitious. I do not, I do not seek after new adventures. I am a faithful plotter. That's, that is me. And I love this church. I, I, all capital letters, love this church, and I love this church today. Who we are today, and this gathering, and I love the size of this church, and, and our, the way we do things, you know, and I suspect I'm probably not alone in that, or else you wouldn't be here. But as I studied for this week, it struck me that, you know, the heart is an idol factory. John Calvin said something to that effect. And, you know, we make idols of, of sex, and we make idols of money, we make idols of whatever, drugs or alcohol. You pick your poison, all the things that we'll talk about. Um, but I don't know that I often think about the way that, that we, we can make idols of our idea of the church. We just, we just make idols all the time. I love small church feel. But what if God grows us? I love worshiping next to my old friends some of whom have been here since day one when there were 40 of us. But what if God tomorrow called us to plant again and I had to say goodbye to all of them? Or they had to say goodbye to me? I love the way things are today, but what if it becomes clear that change is needed? Will I plant my heels? Protect my preferences? Even if my way of doing things has clearly been exposed as deficient, am I going to fight and tooth and claw to keep it just the way I like it? As I said, no looming announcement, nothing coming down the pipeline. So what a healthy time for us to wrestle with these questions. A healthy time for me to wrestle with this. Because as we see in this passage, sometimes God just miraculously overwhelms and overruns the system. And, and things are changing quicker than you ever imagined. It'd be good to be ready for that. It'd be good for our hearts to be ready for something like that. If and when that day were to come, let us resolve to be more committed to God's agenda than we are to our own. If and when that day comes, let us resolve to adopt a posture of faithful flexibility. If and when that day comes, let us resolve to be willing to tell the truth about what's broken and to do the hard work of setting things right. Because, as we see, when the system is fixed, the word of God increases and the ministry flourishes. And that's what we want. And to that end, would you join me in prayer?
Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this day that we could be here together. I thank you for all the things that I've alluded to in this sermon that we just so delight in. Thank you for these brothers and sisters, these friends, this family that uh, I have the privilege of walking with. Lord, thank you for a place where we can gather and we can sing these songs of praise to you. And God, thank you for what you're going to do. And we readily confess that we have no idea what you might do. And Lord, we would, we would just acknowledge right now, if you were to shrink us, if we were to, to come into a season where, where maybe we're sending people away in ministry, or Lord, maybe hard times come and, and, and people are falling by the wayside. Lord, still you're faithful, still you're good. Still, we're so delighted to be able to serve you. Lord, help us to be faithful in the small things. But Lord, if something else were to come, and if you were to bring growth, slow growth or rapid growth, Lord, we just thank you. If everything were to look very different five years from now, thank you. Because this is your church. It's not our church. Uh, it's not my church. It's not the elders' church. It's not the person who's been sitting here the longest church. It's your church. So, Lord, we love, we love your church. Uh, Lord Jesus, you describe the church as your bride. Uh, and you purify her and you prepare her to meet with you. So we look forward in anticipation to whatever it is that you see fit to do to prepare us, uh, to prepare us for the days to come, and then ultimately to prepare us for glory. Lord, uh, we have a heart that uh, aches for the nations to hear and to, to delight in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why we partner with people in Southeast Asia. Lord, that's why we partner with people in the Dominican. That's why we've partnered in the past with people in South Africa. And Lord, it's not lost on us that in this little moment we're living in, here in Little Aurelia, uh, all of those nations are represented at the park. Help us to be faithful in this, Lord. Uh, I pray that we would just reach out in love. And Lord, that you would help us, as you helped this church in Jerusalem, to navigate all the complexities that come in these days. Uh, Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to be uh, overflowing and overwhelming in our generosity as we seek to build up your church and bolster, and Lord, and, and to even undermine uh, old hurts and pains of the past. Uh, Lord, bind us together, we pray. And we pray all of this, God, for the sake of your glory in this city and in this world. God, we want to see you made famous. Lord, we want to see churches planted. We want to see more and more people coming to Christ. In that sense, we want growth, Lord. We want more disciples who are, who are just passionate about following you. So, Lord, to whatever end you might use us, Lord, I pray that you would find us willing and ready and able. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?